Hello, podcast listeners. This is just Travis speaking, and I know it's unusual that I'm speaking before the intro music, but I come before you today with a new feature of the podcast that we're including in the next three episodes, and that is a content warning. We've not given content warnings for any of the books we've previously chosen, and I think we're going to continue to treat this on a case-by-case basis, so we're not going to do a list up top or anything. Usually in the literature we've selected, I don't think it would be warranted, but Amanda and I both agreed that given the contents of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which is what this and the next two episodes will be about, that it was, yeah, for the first time warranted. The Bluest Eye is a novel that features graphic depictions and descriptions of sexual violence, sexual assault, and racism and racist violence. And so if those are topics to which you are either sensitive or you just do not want to engage, we do describe the book in full or we do analyze the book in full. I don't even remember at this point, to be honest, if we discuss those quotes or those moments, but we do talk about them. It's their essential moments in the story, so they do come up a lot in discussion. I'm not going to issue timestamps for any of the things in specific just because it permeates kind of the whole novel and our entire discussion is about the happenings in the book. So instead, I'm going to include this content warning audio up front in front of all the episodes, and I'll let you, the listener, decide what you're comfortable with. We wholeheartedly recommend reading this incredible novel, but again, that's completely up to you to determine what you're comfortable with, what you want to engage with, and think about. And so, yeah, I hope this serves as just enough of a heads up, and so you know what you're getting into. If nothing else, please listen to the book recommendation for The Bluest Eye because we we both feel really passionate about people reading it. And I think we make a case there. And again, we don't get into a lot of the descriptions and the quotes and all of that from the book. But I think we make a really good case about why this is important, why it's so remarkably well done, and why you should read it. So we hope you listen in with us. Thanks for listening to this, and we'll see you between the pages. Let's get to that intro music. back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that sends all of its podcasts directly to God himself. We've got the feed set up for you, big guy. We're directly transmitting. We've got the RSS feed coming to you. Everything's good to go. I don't know, Amanda, if God has been listening so far, though. I don't know if he's a fan yet. we got to work harder, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if it's we're not striking the right balance of kind of frivolity and analysis, or if the tone is off, or... I don't know. Maybe we're too long-winded. We can be a bit long-winded. That's part of the fun. Right. I don't know. What do you think God wants out of a podcast? Mm, more discussion of how amazing he is? That's true. Actually, you nailed it. He wants Bible study podcasts, <laughs> which we are not providing. I bet there's a ton of those out there, though. Wow. Oh, I'm sure. Talk about a, a rock I've never flipped over. <laughs> or I don't know what the metaphor <laughs> would be. Talk about unearthing something I never thought about before. Holy goodness. Yep. If you have no idea why we're talking about talking to God, then that is because we're here today on the Lightly Literary Podcast to do a book club discussion of the second half and then the whole book of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. This is, as I just mentioned, a book club episode, which means we'll be doing an analytical deep dive into that work. That is the purpose of these episodes, and this is, like I said, part two. So today's episode, the whole thing is up for grabs and discussion. That is a reference to The Bluest Eye. Um, I am, as always, your co-host, Travis, joined by Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. We have social media feeds you should be following. The Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, on Facebook and Instagram. So check us out there. Follow us. We post drawings and art and reminders of the pods. We also have... Wait, what am I talking about? 
rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, we also have a <laughs> podcast feed, which is self-evident if you are listening to this show. Let's talk about The Bluest Eye then. As I mentioned, we're going to be doing a deep dive, spoiling the whole thing. This is a novel by Toni Morrison that I chose. If you haven't listened to part one, you should probably go back and listen to that one first. But I'll give a quick setup of how this was chosen. Amanda gave me a prompt that I responded to. And Amanda, what was the prompt for this one? Uh, for you to choose a novel or an author that believe, uh, that deserves to be considered a classic or canonized. Yeah, and I hadn't read this before. My policy on these is to pick things that I've never read. I like to exp- I like to expose myself to new things in literature as much and as often as I can. But I chose an author that I believe should be canonized, and I'm glad this book proved me right. We'll get into the quotes in a second, but yeah, I responded quite strongly to it. I believe Toni Morrison to be an American classic, uh, just author. And so, yeah, I chose The Bluest Eye, which turned out to be her first novel, which I didn't know when I picked it. I just picked it off of title recognition. I had heard about it before, so the title rang true to me. Anything before we jump into the book, Amanda? Nope, I'm ready. I'll admit very weirdly, this might be the first, maybe some of the Penguin ones back in our old days, but this might be the first book I'm almost intimidated to talk about. Really? Well, I think the feeling, and it's not that the topics are so taboo or something, that doesn't put me off in any way, but I feel like because of its density that I... In the segments we do, I feel like there there could be a hundred things to say, and the fact yeah. that we're only going to say like three or four things makes me nervous. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wonder if I should talk about something else. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> no, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Like, yeah. you could you could do so many studies on this book and come out with so much information that's just like yeah. different from the first time you've read it. So, Completely, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> that's yeah, I don't. I, that's all I meant. I didn't mean in terms of because there's definitely um, we'll get into this in some of the outside the text analysis, but this book has been pretty widely banned and debated and all of that stuff because of the content that doesn't put me off in any way it's mostly just there every chapter has a hundred things worthy of analysis so we'll see what we can pull out here let's begin then as we like to do now that the book is concluded for us with some highs and lows this is mostly going to be from the back half of the story this is where we just want to point out things that we want to give praise to or perhaps criticize or critique amanda why don't you start us off with a high or a low you can pick them sure um my low is actually also a high just because yeah it's difficult to think of anything (laughs) in this novel that i did not enjoy and thought was successful um so um my kind of low is um morrison does such a great job with her characters and i just really would love to read more about them um specifically the stories of geraldine marie and soaphead they each each of these characters are really well developed. Even Marie, who doesn't even get her own chapter, but she's just like a side character that pops up occasionally. She's really interesting too, as a person, like she's not just some throwaway character, even though she's not really integral in, in the story, but it's just, these characters are so well developed. She does such a great job with really making them pop and stand out. And I just really want to know more about them. And I know, so that's like the critique part, right? It's just, I really want to read more about that. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. But it makes total sense why she wouldn't include more because then it would actually change the story itself. So I completely right, understand right. and completely respect not including more of their stories. Um, 
But at the same time, I would just, like, if she wrote some short stories about them, I would, like, gobble them up. Like, right. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> I would love it. A crude summary of it would be to say something like, this is just a survey of how a group of people destroyed someone. And so instead yeah. of focusing on the person destroyed, though Piccola gets her time in the book as well, just not as much yeah. as you would maybe expect. It just jumps around to all the people who contributed to the pylon and who ruined her, basically. Yeah. And so it's in its project and kind of its construction thesis organization, I think as soon as I got to the Charlie chapter, it became extremely clear what the book was doing. I think we yeah. talked about in the part one, some of the like jumping around point of view, I believe what I said then was that I wanted it to continue because she's so economical and fierce when introducing a new person. She just immediately hits, you know, she's going a hundred miles an hour out of the gate, so to speak with the description yeah. and just like getting you immersed in this person's life and kind of their experience personality. And so I wanted more of that. And this book just kept continued to do basically exclusively that I think it revisited yeah. Claudia maybe once or twice more than the others. But yeah, this book just continued to play into that structure for sure. So an easy critique to say you wanted more, but it was very compact <laughs> and effective too. I will yeah. also mention a high-low, and I think it is, you're right, all of these are going to be highs in terms of, I think, effectiveness, stylistic choices, just sort of the baseline writing quality. There's no lows. I couldn't really think of one either, except for maybe the concluding part, which I'll get to in a second, but... I, so mostly this is going to be for the content, right? The Chali part. I thought the final couple pages of that part were really breathtaking and harrowing. It's like the, one of the more horrifying things I can remember reading in a long time. The language and mood of it is so well realized that I, I only say it's a high low because suffering through that was really a legitimate challenge, I think. And was kind of, it wasn't unbearable to read because I did read it and it, be, and, and I think, like I said before that at that moment, the totality of what she was trying to do became the most clear when it was setting up his backstory and trying to give us an insight into how this, I think we talked about this in part one as well. It was kind of thinking, well, how does he end up going that far? How does he end up impregnating, raping his own daughter? We had no clue. Right. There was not really a hint, so to speak, other than their general family dysfunction, how that would happen. And so at that point, it became pretty clear what that chapter was building toward. And yeah, just arriving at it. I don't, it's, he's crawling like a beast. He's thinking about nibbling on her flesh. And it just, it's all so really grotesque and yeah. just, yeah, bestial and kind of animalistic. But then you also see how he's been lost to the drink, you know, for a while and his alcoholism's taken over. And there's also this weird, there's affection for his wife in that scene. And it's, it's a little bit about power, but then it's a little bit about his love for his wife. And there's in those pages, a hundred things, and I know alluded to this at the beginning. I'll try not to reiterate this too much in this recording, but there's, yeah, there's about a hundred things you could unpack in the scene in the, the rape, if you wanted to like unpack them. And so, yeah, a low in, in just the challenge of the subject matter, but a high in terms of, you know, she's weaving, you know, at least five to six different thematic things in that moment with some of the language that just make it very evocative, disturbing. Anyway, and I think I was going to say it now, but it's pretty clear to me that this will have to be also the first book where I record a brief trigger warning before the episode starts, which I haven't felt strongly about doing with any of the books we've read so far. Um, this one, though, it's pretty clear that that will be, that I'll do that for that I'll record that for the book recommendation and for the book clubs too, just because 
I don't, how can you avoid discussing it? You can't and shouldn't. And then also right. like you have to get into the, and yeah, I don't know. It, it always feels weird when you're describing content that's so like, I was gonna say morose or grotesque, but the language of it is so intense and well-realized that it's, you know, you have to discuss like those quotes about her flesh and nibbling and, and like it, you have to talk about how, I don't know, the consumptive and just disgusting that is, I, you just can't ignore it, but I don't know. Anyway, so I, I responded to that section. I thought it was horrifying. There are only a few passages in novels I've read that I remember feeling quite that strongly about. One of them is in a John Updike book when he describes a, a mother who accidentally drowns her baby. I remember reacting very similarly to like that couple of pages. This is in the very upper echelon of a true, I don't know, just horrific stuff. Yeah. I don't know if, how you felt about it. I'm not sure. I just exhausted my through my ramblings. Probably exhausted most things about it, but I'm not <laughs> sure if there was anything there specifically you responded to in that in his chapter. Um, for me, my the biggest thing was like the lead up to it d- directly beforehand, where he's actually like angry at her because of the he's so frustrated with his impotence as far as like not being able to be somebody who can protect her and somebody who can love her fully to for what she deserves and not somebody who can like make her feel good about herself right he's looking at her sagging shoulders and it's that that impotence that then turns into the rape yeah Um, yeah so i was like blown away by that kind of cycle there yeah and it's there are certain lines in here too when he when he is entering her it he it's described as a hollow suck of air in the back of her, like in the back of her throat, like yeah. the rapid loss of air from a circus balloon, and it's I mean it's you know Morrison's pretty much signature poetic style of picking the right comparisons, the right figurative language at the right moment or something, but it's it's just it's a deflating moment with a literally deflating image, and it's just so it's right. I mean I guess it's worse than deflating I think, but yeah I just I think back to. The body, I guess Stephen King recalls this, where if you're going to set something up at the beginning of a narrative so clearly, it's admirable when the author has a clear enough vision to pay it off. Again, feels very weird using language like payoff when describing a rape scene in a work of literature, but the principle holds true. If at the beginning of the book you tell us that this horrific thing is going to happen, then you have to have the vision and clarity to show what that is and sort of like draw things out of the reader and make sure that moment is poignant and realized. And I just thought it was, it was, yeah, just horrifying to read. Yeah. So that's yeah, a, that's a good word. For yeah. It. Again, high, low, you know, but that's kind of the quality of the writing was there. Any other, yeah. I mean, we've got plenty of others here. Any other highs you want to discuss? I think you said that was your only low, right? Was the lack of, kind of <laughs> yeah, exploration. That's... And it wasn't even really that the lack like of 200 more pages <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Any, uh, any um, highs you want to get into then? Sure. Um, so speaking of like her mastery of style, her language, her use of language, the poetry with which she, she writes, it's, it's amazing. Um, and I just, I, I love that the diction that she uses is just so carefully chosen in that like each word and each uh, sentence that she creates, it evokes a particular emotion or um, a piece of imagery that's just like so impactful. It's so uh, wonderfully done and everything is just 
it's like you you can see exactly what she wants you to see and feel exactly what she wants you to feel. Yeah. And everything is put in place for a particular reason. There's nothing superfluous about her writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I picked like a, a quote um, from page 97 to kind of exemplify that. And mm-hmm. this is like the uh, where she's talking about the 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 spring twigs versus the winter twigs for for beating the kids. Um, for punishing the kids. Yes, um, yes. And it says, yeah, uh, the first twigs are thin, green, and supple. They bend into a complete circle, but will not break. Their delicate, showy hopefulness shooting from forsythia and lilac bushes meant only a change in whipping style. They beat us differently in the spring. Instead of the dull pain of a winter strap, there were these new green switches that lost their sting long after the whipping was over. There was a nervous meanness in these long twigs that made us long for the steady stroke of a strap or the firm but honest slap of a hairbrush. So I, I love this because there is a lot of imagery here and like you can definitely fe- feel like the fear of of these uh, stinging new <laughs> twigs that are, are supple. But also um, you can read into that too and, and find some symbolism there about because there's a lot of references to nature and about the new growth and rebirth of things that actually is almost like perverted in a lot of ways in this novel. And so this yeah, kind of yeah. fits in with the overall theme and, and her message about what's happening and, and what she sees is happening in the world during that time. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and leave it to Morrison to evoke to describe the the abuse the switches in a way that's sort of i don't know it's sort of natural and beautiful but also yeah the the orderliness behind it the the thought behind it is kind of terrifying in a way too for the kids yeah. i mean that they 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 know this system in a way this is the mm-hmm. this is the natural system to them and it's you know deployed through nature through these branches yeah no i we i remember in the first part we talked about the couch quote and yeah it's just yeah. That there's it's clear that no moment is going to go without commentary and exploration and it's because mm-hmm. you know she must have had a pretty clear vision of what she wanted to include and which digressions to take and when to take them so yeah let me put another high out there then i want to end with the one i think was kind of a low mix but the other high i i just can't get over how much i was drawn in with the soaphead church section i forget his real name we'll get to it later he's such a preposterous creation i it, it was the final flourish for me where she can clearly introduce a character in three pages, unlike almost any author that I've read in recent memory anyway. And that I think the prose in that section was on such display. She had, there's such a vision of this kind of privileged upper crust. He's been sort of corrupted by, by whiteness in the, in the cultural societal sense. And also, I guess in the genetic sense too, since his family had been like, you know, mixed race breeding or whatever the phrase would be from that time. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just, he's such a strange concoction also is a, pedophile and kind of an obsessive but a social recluse too but also weirdly sentimental and has incredibly poignant thoughts about about his pedophilia essentially and it's i don't it it just became such an intense study that you lose sight of what's going on in the broader sense of the novel or at times it helps you 
the, the novel leads you astray so intensely that you can't help but wonder what's when's it going to come back to Piccola, and it does. So I, you know, think that's ultimately satisfying. I think just the tone in the letter that he writes to God too, which there's the throwback to the to the intro. I just had to use that in the intro. I thought that letter was just it was one of the only true moments of humor. I think there are other slight moments of humor in the book, but this was one of the only things that. Even then, it was disturbing. He he goes on a yeah. long digression about how it feels to touch young breasts and how it's playful, I felt, and friendly, and that's a direct quote. And so, in no look that makes you feel dirty afterward, uh, that makes you want to die with little girls, it was all clean and good and friendly. So he's there's disturbing stuff in there, too, and plenty of it. But at the end, when he says, now you are jealous, you are jealous of me, he's talking to God. You see, I too have created, not aboriginally like you, but creation is a heady wine, more for the taster than the brewer. Having therefore imbibed, as it were, of the nectar, I am not afraid of you, of death, not even of life. And it's all right about Velma, and it's all right about Papa, and it's all right about the greater and lesser Antilles. Quite all right, quite. With kindest regards, I remained your Elihu, is it Elihu? Elihu? I, I, I pronounced it Elihu in my head. Elihu, yeah, <laughs> but it also looks like the, the long version of Eli, right? Eliu? Let's oh, go with maybe. Elihu. Micah Whitcomb. So it just, I don't know. It, there There's just complexities here at play, even in a brief, even in that letter, which is pretty brief, all told, that explored this man's arrogance, self-satisfaction, his kind of, they call him a misanthrope plenty of times in the story, his, his misanthropy in, in, in times too, and his truly disturbing and really heartfelt pedophilia and that he has this notion of beauty and purity in life and that he, you know, pursued it. He really thinks that he turned Piccola around and g- gave her such a gift, the gift of death, uh, truly, you know, the gift of uh, dog murder. There's got, is there a word for that? Murdering I an animal? I, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't Dog-a-side. know Doggicide. Yeah, yeah, some kind of, what would, like canine side? I don't know. Anyway. Canine-a-side. So we'll get back to this in another section, too, so I can say a couple more brief things. But I just thought that the absurdity and the intensity of that, I I felt the pain of having to live this man's life. And I, like I said, it felt like a final flourish in a sense where I just thought she did it again with a completely new concoction. It just every character in the story has a different perspective and commentary on black American experience, African American life. And just, he was just the one more invention that I just didn't even know if the book could sustain at that point. When you get to his chapter, I'm like, can we really, are we doing another intense descriptive backstory with all these complexities? And and lo and behold, we do it again. She does it again. (laughs) What, um, when I got to his chapter, what I, made note of was that he is somebody who shows pity for Piccola and Piccola, the only people who show any pity and who show sympathy and who don't just completely treat her like trash are the people who are not a part of like the actual community. They're, they're people who are on the outskirts of society. So, uh, the prostitutes. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Soped and then um, Claudia and Frida. And the reason that they are out on the outskirts of society is because they're children. So all children are kind of treated as like yeah, that's almost clear. other creatures in a lot of ways, yeah. but yeah. Um, in this novel. So I thought that was really interesting. And it was just like another, 
another layer and another point of like the community continues to fail her and it's these people who we look down on that have these perversions that have these um things that are supposedly wrong with them and a lot of there is wrong with soped but not so much with like marie that we can tell except that she's you know a prostitute yeah and that means but, maureen slots in in an interesting wait is maureen the young girl who buys them food buys her ice cream is that maureen yeah maureen she I slots in miss marie but, oh yeah. yeah she slots in in a fascinating way then because she is like the devil trickster you know she she does she seems to be the kindest to piccola outright right. but then it's revealed that she just wants to tease her about her father in the end right or maybe to, like yeah kind to of, get more information yeah. to like feed to other people yeah yeah yeah, fascinating. Okay, any other highs for you? I've got one more, but I want you to take it away if you've got one. Yeah, I've got one more. Um, I was just going to say that I really love, just in general, the insights of the novel. She has great characterization that we've been talking about. She's also got great discussions of beauty, of self-worth, and the culpability of people in the media. But in, even though she writes about that stuff, and that's like the theme of her novel, she doesn't come off as preachy as she is having these discussions, it's uh, integrated in ways that, that are through the character, through the dialogue between the characters, and through the symbolism of certain objects like the couch, <laughs> right? Or yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> in the second half, um, uh, Mrs. Breedlove's teeth, right? Those are mm -hmm. all symbols. So it's like her her points are made through symbols and so it doesn't seem as preachy and it's actually more enjoyable to read mm -hmm. and it just is another testament to how how wonderful she is a writer let's talk about my maybe only legitimate low then which i think is the con the claudia narration after the pacola section at the end so the concluding segments there's two in a row there is there's the part i i found fascinating then there's the part i thought was really good but also could have done without so the part i found fascinating is the what i interpreted as a inner monologue with piccola and either herself or i was kind of picturing her um interlocutor there to be shirley temple like a, a kind of this idealized person a girl that she wants to befriend or be like maybe something like that some voice in her head i think there could be another reading i was picking over some quotes in it again there's a, maybe a reading that it could be claudia but there's some quotes in there too that just don't make sense that it would be claudia either because she says things like you were there when he did it or the, like th there's just certain ways she phrases events that make it clear that there's no actual person she knows that could have that could be connecting with her in this way she's also right. expressing a delusion that that mr what's his name again soap soap church soap head soap head yeah. um, that he planted in her mind you know that and fulfilled her wish so here are some thoughts then i i found i found that inner monologue once once you get over and maybe s become settled on who is she speaking to again in my mind it's to herself or she's imagining some person i thought again maybe from earlier in the book it was shirley temple or something but i thought those musings on life were so it's almost the most disturbing because it shows how she's beginning to compartmentalize and justify things and put them away and so in that reading it's almost as horrifying in a sense as some of the other scenes and descriptions of course it's not descriptive it's all dialogue so it's a nice kind of change of pace to at the end it's a little more breezy and it's nice to hear from her directly but then that her kind of kind simple voice is undercut by when you're realizing that she's slipping into 
uh, kind of psychosis of of a sort and from her right. trauma. And that's it's so it's kind of this like very gentle way to show that somebody is destroyed, which is I found tonally just really disturbing and pretty poignant. And then Claudia gets to just wrap it up for us. I mean, that's a pretty blatant wrap up section, right? As far as these things go, she tells us yeah. a couple of key themes and ideas. She reminds us of the seed imagery and the metaphor of that again. And like, it's funny because at the end of that, when Claudia is narrating, I, I thought to myself, oh, this really wasn't a work that to me begged for a wrap up because it was already so complex. You're already asking so much of the reader. Then again, there are some really memorable lines at the end. And so even though it was the part of the novel I thought that told the most, that kind of wanted to put maybe too much of a bow on this, I also appreciated some of that straightforward, just kind of poetic summary in a way. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I I wouldn't call it a low like we've discussed. I don't think any of this is a low in the most literal strict sense of that word. But I did think if it would have ended with her inner monologue, I think it would have been a much bigger ask of the reader. There's no question. Even now, as I've, as I've just been going on, I, I have questions about who that is and what's going you know, it's, I, even I don't know for sure, but I would have been pretty satisfied pondering that, you know, but I admire like there's the lines about thieves in the night. That's I've heard that used in some music and rap songs and stuff. There's like really iconic language at the end in that in that final Claudia section. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea to recall the seeds and kind of put a final thought about her her own culpability and failure and everything and her mm. thoughts about that. So I'm not sure. I felt really great about the ending. And then any time that some kind of wrap up like that occurs, even if it's beautifully realized, there is a small part of my brain that goes, ooh, you could have ended with the much messier thing. I don't know. I don't know why I like a mess at the end of the stories. I just like when things are weird and ambiguous, I guess, in a sense. <laughs> anyway, how did you yeah. respond to the end? What are, what are your thoughts or reads on it? Um, I enjoyed it because I thought that it, um, it, like you said, yes, it is a very tidy ending, and it and it connects to the prologue part that um, we had talked about last um, episode, where we start off with the Jane is blah, 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 see Jane run or whatever. Um, and then it progresses to like these incomplete fragmented like sentences and stuff. That is a mirror to Piccola's, obviously Piccola's madness at the end as well. And then the seeds also were a part of the um the the same prologue um part where claudia is like introducing right an adult claudia is introducing the story yeah is yeah. framing the story and then ends again with claudia as an adult reflecting on the story um as like a a flashback almost and that just ties so nicely with the prologue yeah and um, th- that it revisited because we sp- spoke about this in the motifs i don't think this was my motif but i remember bringing this up with claudia that her notions of love were just very thorny and kind of just twisted and became yeah. sort of just devastating and that that she revisits that here thematically i found quite satisfying because it it brought all those thoughts back in my head and it raised that issue back in my mind which i had kind of I think put further back in favor of other ideas. And so to see that come up again of love and possession and being beloved and having your love be kind of a rotten evil and everything anyway, kind of Mm -hmm. a plague of love. And so I don't, yeah, I found the ending. It's about as good as a wrap up section as I can fathom for how kind of clean it felt to have that at the end. Yeah. So any reading on the inner monologue part, help me. (laughs) <laughs> the way that I interpreted that, I, I saw that as like, cause at first I was like, wait, who's she talking to? But um, it yeah. became pretty clear to me that it's, it's someone 
that she has made up in her mind, like one of those imaginary friends. I mean, she talks about how like, it's almost like you're not even here because sometimes my mom just like almost walks all over you. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah so I was like, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's her imaginary friend. And also somebody who's like for an imaginary friend is still kind of like pushy about stuff, which I was like, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's that can control another's thoughts like you would. <laughs> is it so wild to think she's internalized that even as her best friend would be somebody to so antagonize her? I don't you right. know, that yeah, also I seems know, fitting. Like, that's pretty telling. Yeah. It could honestly be given that the monologue and the kind of run-on sentence that was happening throughout, that could be the Jane imagined in that imagine i don't i'd buy her that reading I've, i hadn't given really any depth of thought to that reading but <laughs> if somebody said here's the case and here's why it, that would be resonant and make sense and everything i would i would believe that too i don't yeah it's just and that's why my brain initially went back to shirley temple because it just i thought it had a clear grounding kind of foundation in the text so i think i was drawn to that I was just thinking maybe she's communicating with a person she was envious of and thought was kind of this ideal at a time of beauty with the eyes too. All right, let's move then. If we've not discussed enough already, <laughs> let's get into the real analysis, shall we? That was all just warm up. Let's jump to the imaginary essays. This is the part of the part two pod where Amanda and I like to present each other with an essay prompt that the other person responds to. No, we are not reading actual essays. All we do is use the prompt as a version of an, or a way to analyze the work and a lens through which we can do that. And so we just have outlines here prepped. It's the kind of the final analytical framework that we'll use to talk about the book and think about it. As usual, Amanda, I will start with your essay if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you are prepared. My question for you, at the end of the novel, uh, it, it paints Piccola's situation rather beautifully, though it is a tragedy, but the you know, like we said, the language at the end is really beautiful and has some striking images. This is one of those. It says, all the waste and beauty of the world, which is what she herself was. That's Piccola. What does this novel show or teach us about waste and beauty? What is their relationship and what can humanity do with both or either? Feel free to analyze that through any lens that you want. I was really tempted to, I mean, because I don't think any reading of this novel for such obvious reasons could ignore black history, African-American experiences, all that stuff. So I almost thought about framing it in that way. But I, I, I like the broad framing here. Just waste and beauty. What do you think? What's the relationship there? What does it teach us? So take it away. What are your thoughts? Um, so for waste, waste is, I think, related to the idea of like failure or feelings of failure. Um, so in uh, Claudia and Frida's garden, which we see at the beginning on page five and at the end on page 206, they attempt to save Piccola um, by planting the seeds and praying to God and saying, hey, um, will give up what was it a month i think we'll, so we'll be good for a month or something like yeah, that and yeah if you will help piccola and and keep the baby alive um and we'll know that god has heard us when the plants come up right um and in the end the plants do not grow they fail to grow and piccola also is stunted um she's mm-hmm. unable to grow and become you know, an adult person who can take care of herself. Um, so that idea of failure and of waste in that sense. Um, and then we also see Mrs. Breedlove, Piccola's mother, um, 
with her, it's her dreams that are dying and her expectations and her, her love for her home and her children are all wasting away. They're all, um, it's falling away from her because of her perceived ideas of like failure because, uh, she went to the movies. She saw a bunch of stuff about like what it meant to be successful. And she's looking right. back at her house at, at her home. And she's like, yeah, that's not the same. Right. And then she goes to work in the, um, the white home and she actually prefers staying in that white home where she feels more empowered in a lot of ways. Um, because she is given more respect as a servant to a white uh, home rather and more so than when mm -hmm. she's shopping or, or doing stuff for her own home, even though in her own home, she is like, you know, the queen of her home. Um, so, um, I pulled a quote for that one, um, where she's kind of reflecting on her life. And she said, um, the narrator says it was only sometimes, sometimes, and then rarely that she thought about the old days or what her life had turned to. They were musings, idle thought, full sometimes of the old dreaminess, but not the kind of thing she cared to dwell on. And then, um, on two pages later, it says from her perspective, um, but I don't care about it no more. My maker will take care of me. I know he will. I know he will. Besides, it don't make no difference about this old earth. There's sure to be a glory. Only thing I miss sometimes is that rainbow. But like I say, I don't recollect it much anymore. So she just kind of gives up on her life is the, the failure and the, the lack of ability to feel like she can make a change in her own life to make her life better and just instead kind of turning away from her yeah. life and what spending you... more of her time on yeah. um, <clears throat> and energies in, in, in taking care of another's home that's already kind of set up for success. Ah, okay. That's what I was going to ask about because she's clearly so tender with the, the daughter, the white family's daughter. Right. right. Because it's already successful. Everything's already working the way she wants it to work. And she doesn't, right. I mean, she's working, right. But it's not like she has to work at keeping it like that um, necessarily. So She's she's giving up on her own life. She accepts her life and she becomes a part of the system that puts down her own children. And we can see that on page 128. She she's loving towards the little white girl, but then she's teaching her own children to be afraid of right. everything, essentially. Right. Yeah. And we also see with the idea of failure, Charlie. Um, so Charlie is, of course, a despicable character. And um, I think that. Morrison does a really good job with like showing us how he became the way that he is. Um, he's, mm -hmm. he's also gone through some really atrocious um, uh, times and experiences in his life. Um, but his failures lead to that atrocious behavior, um, especially when we see that he rapes Piccola. And, um, and what I had pointed out earlier was that, the the rape scene occurs after he realizes how badly he has failed Pacola and how he cannot yeah. actually do anything about that because he is stripped of any power to make his daughter feel empowered because he knows that in the end their whole community is essentially powerless 
right? Which is how he felt that first time when he was, when he had sex with, what was her name? Darlene? I forgot. It was a brief scene, but also a terrifying one that kind of set a certain path or precedent for him, I think. Right, exactly. So that was another failure. And his innocence in that scene is just so devastating because you know how that chapter is going to end. Because at that point, again, the structure is so clear that you know that's the chapter he's getting. So to have it open that way is just, was just, I don't know. So yeah, the, the awfulness really compounds anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's the, the failures due to powerlessness, right? It's specifically due to powerlessness. It's that feeling, which is reflected in the community at large where they, they are powerless to change a lot of their circumstances as well. Right. Um, and the perceptions of their community, that's what causes him to act out and to claim power over something or someone, which is also reflected when we see Piccola getting picked on by those little boys at school. Yes. Um, The description that Toni Morrison writes is that they are lashing out at her in response to how they feel as far as like, they feel powerless. They feel that their self-worth is, is really low. So they act out, against Pacola in order to make themselves feel better. And that's right, a, that's yeah. a common thread throughout the chapter. So that, that failure is the waste. That powerlessness is the waste. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. And thought, um, thoughts on beauty or uh, not, yeah. sorry, I was looking at your outline worth rather. Cause I think the quote is about worth or no, it was about beauty, right? Beauty. Yeah. Right. Anyway. So beauty is worth, right? That is your self worth okay. in a lot of yeah. ways. So uh, when we see Marine, Right. She's mixed. So she's light skinned. She's got green eyes and everyone, adults, children, everyone treats her with more respect than Mm -hmm. um, the other girls in school, than the other black girls in school. So I have a quote from page 62. When teachers called on her, they smiled encouragingly. Black boys didn't trip her in the halls. White boys didn't stone her. White girls didn't suck their teeth when she was assigned to be their work partners. Black girls stepped aside when she wanted to use the sink in the girls' toilet, and their eyes genuflected under sliding lids. Frida and I were bemused, irritated, and fascinated by her. We looked hard for flaws to restore equilibrium, but had to be content at first with uglying up her name. Specifically, I pulled that because of the uglying up her name. (laughs) The only way to make her less enchanting is to make her somehow less beautiful. And the only way that they right. can do that, because physically she fits, better fits what the standard of beauty was, which is white and affluent, they had to um, instead make fun of her name. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to make that seem less beautiful. So I thought that was pretty telling as far as like, even the adults, right, are treating her better because she's light skinned and because she has green eyes, she is affluent. So therefore she has more worth than these other students, um, regardless of what her mind is like, right? We have no idea what her mind is like, except that she tries to manipulate Pecola, right? Right, right. <laughs> so obviously not a nice person. Um, and this is... Um, and Maureen is like definitely like the opposite of Piccola in a lot of ways where Piccola is, is depicted as like being especially ugly according to the community because she's dark. She's, um, she's not exactly, um, 
she's like one of the poorest, right? Her family comes from. There's some comments in there about her maybe posture or like nose at some point. There, there's definitely some physical description early on that make her sound, I don't know, kind of hunched or defeated looking in a way. I don't yeah, have defeated that looking. It's yeah. and I think that it was Claudia who said like the reason that she looks so ugly is because she owned how ugly she looked. Like she, yeah. she felt unattractive she felt unwanted and so she like wrapped it around her like a blanket almost which made her even more unattractive in a lot of ways yeah yeah. um so and so the community at large mistreats and looks down on piccola even though nobody tries to get to even know piccola right they just kind of like heap a lot of their hatred onto piccola and ridicule her and they fail to show her any sympathy um even after she becomes pregnant and the comments about the baby were about like, Oh, that baby's going to be ugly. It's probably better off if it were to die. Yeah. Like they, how horrible yeah, they to could, say that. Right? And, right. and the focus there too on, on whether it's a beautiful baby or an ugly baby. It's like, what even is that conversation? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But because they are equating worth with beauty Pecola, as someone who is not pretty by media standards, she is therefore not worthy of their sympathy. I wonder what Claudia's reading ultimately then is because she calls, she says Pecola's life was beautiful or that she is or was or that she embodied beauty. Maybe I suppose then she embodied the struggle against it or something. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. And perhaps it's the, the beauty of, um, because she talks, she's almost like a martyr, right? Piccola right. is like, she's she's the vessel for everybody to um, heap their self-loathing and their hatred onto, and she just mm-hmm. accepts it. So perhaps that's the, that's the beauty that Claudia sees in her. So, some flowers just don't grow, right? That's one of the final, and that final yeah. kind of denouement or explainer mm-hmm. section, that's one of the final images given. Okay. Any other thoughts on these two topics? Um, I would just say that it seems like that there's a relation, the relationship between the two is that either way, whether you, um, are considered beautiful or you, um, are considered like a waste, either way you have no agency because all of those standards are based on like, not your own standards, but you're, you're basing it on how you compare to others. Right. So outside mm. forces make the community impotent. Outside forces dictate whether your life is a failure or whether you are considered beautiful based on what what is accepted as the American dream and based on what is accepted as this is a beautiful woman or this is a beautiful man. So yeah. it's like you, yeah. you just can't win. For sure. Yeah, it's it's a tough one to un, kind of untangle and unravel. That's well said, though. Okay, uh, you want to toss an essay my way? I will. I'll try and take it away here. Yeah. So my question for you is: um, the idea of freedom pops up several times in the novel. So, what is freedom according to the characters and the narrators in the novel? And also, mm-hmm. how do people, according to the novel, imprison themselves or make it so that they are not free? Yeah, I was so. When I first saw the prompt, my thoughts immediately went to Piccola since she is the sort of vessel and vector by which all of these entangled forces destroy. You know, she's the one that kind of absorbs their all of their problems and destruction in the end. So I think I'll start with her. 
She is clearly the most burdened and imprisoned character in this book. And so her lack of freedom at every turn is kind of staggering. So let me list off some here. She clearly is not free from the roles of domesticity or womanhood. During the rape scene, for example, she is depicted as cleaning the dishes when he takes her. And so, and when he rapes her, and then of course there, there's the childbirth, which she does go through, but the child dies. So even, even kind of, you know, the, maybe the blessing of womanhood or something of motherhood rather, not womanhood, motherhood, even that is not that, even that is kind of a curse and a burden for her. So she's not free from those roles. She's clearly not free from poverty or classism. Uh, there's a quote here from 71. Let me pull quickly, but at every turn, you know, she's bullied, picked on, she's taken advantage of by Maureen in a sense, try almost kind of bribed in a weird way. And Mm. so, yeah, that, that quote, when she's talking about it, it, um, there's a little bit here. That's a slight image, but it, I thought effective, it talks about Piccola when she's eating the ice cream that she so craved. Um, she curls her tongue around the edge of the cone, scooping up a dollop of purple that made my eyes water. We were waiting for a stoplight to change. Maureen kept scooping the ice cream from around the cone's edge with her tongue. That's Maureen. She didn't bite the edge as I would have done, so a little more voracious. Her tongue circled the cone, and then Piccola had finished hers. Maureen evidently liked her things to last. So even in that, there's the sense of kind of urgency and greed in Piccola because... Because of her situation, because of her poverty, she's just desperate to experience things to have in a way. And, you know, those those notes come up again. We could go back to the couch description, but, you know, the, the poverty that she's trapped in is clear. She's not free from schoolyard bullying. On page 90, the, the incident where she gets trapped in the home with the boy, she's lured in and assaulted and, you know, the cat's thrown at her and all that stuff. At that In page 90, it literally he literally says, you're my prisoner. And so, you know, she's not free from, from just childhood concerns either or childhood bullying. And I could probably go on, but those are just some of the ones that came to mind right away. So... The story has kind of this diorama horror going where every shift in point of view is kind of just goes to another inherited African-American or black experience horror. And it, it covers so many of them. And, and what it does is then kind of indicts the country on Pecola's behalf. She almost stands as this kind of case study of here is every horror in this community and we are going to unleash it into one person in this book and and we're not even you know morrison doesn't even use her perspective that often instead i'm going to kind of like kaleidoscope around and touch upon all these different people so i think that would be my reading just if i you know in the in the um perspective of the imaginary essay that's probably how i would respond it would be mostly about piccola and how she is a vessel for all of this now a couple other points i'd make though or would be interested in talking through i think the moment in the story, so when I saw your essay was about freedom, the the part I went to immediately, though, was Charlie. That was probably my first thought, because I think in his section, those words and motifs quite literally came up the most in my eyes. Like, I just literally remember seeing the word freedom a lot. And mm-hmm. on page 138 and 139, there are, there's this depiction of these women that his, it's his aunt who raises him, right? I think it's an aunt. Yes, either an aunt or a great aunt or something like that. Yeah, because he's literally abandoned as a child. Now, there's a scene with some of her friends and these women that raise him and are around him, and it describes them 
uh, as the only people they did not take orders from were black children and each other. And this is a group of, of older black women. But they took all of that and recreated it in their own image. They ran the houses of white people and knew it. When white men beat their men, they cleaned up the blood and went home to receive abuse from the victim. They beat their children with one hand and stole from them on the other. And it goes on to describe the sort of their psychology and how they're behaviorally and how they're raising. But it concludes by saying they were old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, and at last, free. And the lives of these old black women were synthesized in their eyes, a puree of tragedy and humor, wickedness and serenity, truth and fantasy. It's probably the clearest group of people in the entire collection that seems explicitly free and it's mm -hmm. the balance between having lived enough life to know certain things, but also not being so close to the end to have to just want to get off the ride to use a crude comparison. And I just, I've read, read that section and I'm sure I could come up with answers, but it, it does make you wonder why didn't Charlie, how is Charlie's version of freedom so perverted then? Cause on 159, it talks about how he finally became free when his father you know, got rid of him at that, in that gambling scene. And, but, and so his, Charlie's freedom in that moment in that chapter is almost a disturbing kind of like he's free of social entanglements and relationships. He has no obligations to this world. He has no obligations to feel love and no seemingly no hope to feel it. So his freedom is sort of this curse. Whereas those other women who have kind of lived and kept in a you know group or have some kind of communal feeling or just relationships or something they have a love or a, rather a freedom that is in some way i don't know productive or pure kind of beautiful and not not corrosive and his because mm -hmm. on 159 when it says that it's clearly a kind of a curse or not maybe not an indictment but some kind of burden has been put on him that he is free in the sense that he is abandoned and free not sort of beloved or and free or something so I right. think I, I just found his chapter fascinating, and I guess we could ask, why doesn't their freedom, he was raised around these women, why doesn't their freedom rub off on him? That, I think, raises complexity about gender roles and all, and other things that I don't know if I'd address in this essay, but I found his chapter to explore those ideas the most, I think, intriguingly. And then I'll briefly mention this just to wrap up. I think the other figure or set of figures in this book that you would have to talk about when discussing freedom would be the prostitutes, the ones who we, I know we wanted more time with them, but they're, they're all yeah. too briefly visited <laughs> in the story. I think if there's any character I can come away from this thinking, they seem happy and comfortable. They are the only ones. They, they seem to have accepted their lot in life. They have a kind of workplace and class solidarity. I think when I was looking back over the quotes, they seem to sort of maybe not depend on each other but support the endeavor that they're in together they're aging into that acceptance that i just that was aforementioned in that quote i pulled and so i'd also make a note that that's leading them to some kind of grace and kindness i think there's a lot of quotes that we could discuss on those pages 56 for me and sort of their role but even i think back to when is it um is it the line, the the minnow minole line who throws the bottle at claudia and her sister frida is that yeah, who the does Maginot line. Maginot line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even when she does that, it's, you know, she was, they were frightened of her because they had been taught to fear her. And so, right. of course, they, you know, they weren't accepting her gifts. It seemed like a temptress kind of a situation. But, I you know, from what we know about them, they were just being sincere. She was offering them a drink and a bit of a peace offering. But even when she then slams it and tosses it at them and kind of laughs it off and jokes, it's just that she has a certain 
teasing kind of, I don't know, there's a certain teasing feeling to that that didn't feel nefarious to me, but felt like she just kind of was rising above it all. And she didn't seem genuinely disturbed that her mom thought little of her and that she taught her children to fear her. It just seemed like she was kind of above it and was having a, having a laugh about it or something. And I guess yeah. it is kind of a slightly violent scene to, to, for the throwing of the bottle, but I don't know, something about, I'd have to revisit that moment a little more deeply, but it didn't read as terrifying or frightening to me. It read as kind of, I don't know, almost jovial, more like silly or something. So I think they would have to come up too. I'm not sure what my thesis would be for those three, but it would probably be something related to, I, I really don't know. They're, I guess like you said earlier, way earlier, they're social outsiders in a way. So perhaps yeah. their perspective is different. I don't think that is so true with the other women I quoted, the, the older women who raised Charlie, but there there might be some kind of through line to connect there. So I think that's my the long and short of my answer. I would certainly start with Pecola. I think that just the very structure of the book leads to her first because she is utterly without freedom she's just yeah. doomed for i mean literally structurally from the start of the book she's doomed and then the book just continues to entangle her in horrors and so yeah i think that's that would be roughly my answer any thoughts on freedom anything overlooked i know um at the end too there is some discussion of freedom right specifically um with charlie um mm-hmm. Uh, on the very last page, I'm trying to find it, but um, about how love um, is perverted by his sense of like freedom. And I think you made a good mm-hmm. point about um, the the freedom seeming to be associated almost with being an outcast, not an outcast, I would say, but, but on the fringes of like the main society and even like the old women, they are no longer right. The, the, their privilege of, of rest and of not being um, enmeshed in stuff is that they are out of that community now. They're not the ones that are taking part in active discussions and and activities and, and trying to curb behavior and stuff like that. They're past right. that. So it's like there's they're, they've done their obligation. There's no obligation anymore. And I think the with Charlie there was no obligation because he didn't feel like it right he's just like nobody's done anything for me why should I do anything for them and then with the Maginot line she she and the other two prostitutes have no obligation to any of the adults because they look down on all the almost all the adults so I think it's related to a feeling of obligation so I would agree with you there yeah yeah I would there's got to be some reading of this I was just thinking of this as you were going as you were talking but there's got to be a reading of this too that uh, about a freedom and there, there this book is just dripping with uh, pedophilia and I don't it just yeah. I feel like there has to be some kind of reading about the inner the role of children in a society their position and their their vulnerability kind of how delicate that can be and the the way adults approach them and mentor them or abuse them or don't and I don't yeah the adult behavior in this book is so uh, complex often very often terrifying and gruesome often predatory yeah and even like not even just the the pedophiles but the um the whippings and all that stuff it's Mm -hmm. like you know these are kids and it it does feel like a lot of the adults are are predatory almost yeah the of the figures in the book i think the adults are some of the more pathetic figures in in their 
I don't know, in, in how they've been cast out and treated. But then I don't know. Some there's got to be a reading about this, some of the children too. Even even I'm think back to the like Mr. Henry. We didn't even bring him up in the back half, but that ended so creepily too. I mean that that yep. that comes and goes so quickly in the story. And so yep. I regret all the kindness I paid him in the front. I think I forgot what I said in the part one, but it was something like he seemed like the only kind and good person. You know, he was just being nice and was just kind of friendly. And of course yeah. that turned, you know, so yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, lots of things to read into though. Any, okay. Any final thoughts on the essays at all? Nope. Excellent. We covered a lot of topics, so I'm quite pleased by that. And I don't know, I, I guess I'm still fearful we didn't cover enough, but I also don't feel that bad because I, you, with this book, I don't know if you ever would <laughs> or could. Right. <laughs> Let's move to the final two segments then of the book club for The Bluest Eye. We'll start with The Lost Pages. This is a brief segment we like to do where we pick a topic or some kind of element of the story that we would have liked to see expanded upon, either in this work or maybe just a separate one. We just talk about something we think we want more of. So, Amanda, what are your Lost Pages for this book? Um... I, I mentioned it in the previous episode, but I would love to read some more about Miss Marie, AKA the Maginot line. Yeah, like she yeah. was just fascinating to me. And I was hoping to see more of her in the second half of the novel as well, but alas, um, but she's such an interesting character and um, she's one of the few, as Claudia points out at the end that actually loved Piccola. Um, yeah. Right. So she right. had a different relationship with children than the other adults do. Um, and so I really liked her character and I love that she was also very pragmatic and, um, that she was actually full of like emotion. We see a lot of, um, emotion come out of her, um, for somebody mm -hmm. who's not one of the main characters. And I just, I would just love to read more about Let's her. get more time with those. I believe the quote is gargoyles. Yeah. The gargoyles <laughs> up on the second floor, you know, they got their position of wisdom they're hanging out yep. on the roof, seeing all. Mm -hmm. And they're not like those usual novel prostitutes, right? Not here to just dispense wisdom and kindness to troubled men. Right. So, no, I completely agree there. It's You could pick, take your pick of characters as I'm about to do, but they those three make for a fascinating grouping. I am loath to admit this, but I'm going to revisit it here. I was drawn to the old misanthrope. Ella, Ella Hugh Micah Whitcomb or whatever they called him Godhead or I forget the Soaphead so Godman or something I don't even the title was bizarre now I think there's a couple things here I I will say that I found that his backstory most interesting before we got to the pedophilia I thought the object fascination and that way he was connecting with people really just a I don't know fascinating bit of characterization now since this book was published first there's been so much in the real world in the news and also in media about how these preacher types can become pedophiles and abuse power, how they take advantage of young people, boys and girls in their in their circle, in their social vicinity and spheres and everything. So I don't know if I'd want the version. I, I really don't know what I want. I guess I just wanted to point out that I found his intro and nuances so compelling. His internalized elitism was really striking. And I think in a book that presents so much of black experience in America was again, I, I at that point didn't know that the book could sustain another perspective, but I think it did. And it, just his self-love and his arrogance is just extraordinary. If you, I don't know if you write a letter directly challenging God, I, I think I am going to at least be curious about what you've got going on <laughs> in your life. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, his misanthropy, his contentment to just be sorrowful and accept his lot and just kind of get along with it. So 
I, yeah, I'm not sure what I would want. I, I don't think this chapter need, or sorry, I don't think this book needs extra chapters. I don't think any character deserves a second chapter because they're so perfectly succinct already, and the construction is already so um, precise. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I do hate admitting how much that that his the tone of his section that letter too got to me, and so. Yeah, I don't know. I just want more about him, I think. Yeah, he's a really... I, I would love to have more of, like, his background, um, like, his marriage to Vilma, right? Yeah. And then the yeah. the introduction to the pedophilia actually was, like, related to the fact that he's... Actually, he's, he's homosexual, but he's... Right, right. Like, uh, he's disgusted by it, and not because of any like moral foundation but because he is actually like genuinely disgusted by the idea of somebody like a dude specifically caressing him and i was like right right then are you really gay <laughs> yeah the line <laughs> but... in there about something about how he could if he put more energy into it he could sustain a relationship with a man but then yeah there's he has certain things about I mean, he has such precise ideology. That's part of what makes right. him kind of corrupt or poisoned is there's a quote in his section about how he read all the classics, but picked only what he wanted to learn from them, which is such a, yeah. there's such an academic kind of strain of elitism in him that I, again, was drawn to in a loathsome kind of way, in a disturbing yeah. study kind of way. And yes, that he applied that to his sexual life isn't surprising. And I think, again, just adds nuance, complexity to a person who... Seems, I don't know, pretty rotten, but also, yeah, just a person I, I felt like I wanted to study up more. I don't, I think him having his own short story or something, maybe that's the dream for me. He, although, yeah, you know, the yeah. way this book was written, he kind of got it in a sense. <clears throat> so with um, Soaphead, his um, predilection for little girls is because of power. So, like, I think part of the reason that he um, actually was like, disgusted with his actual sexuality is because he did not want to give somebody power over him because he sees himself as i mean he's more powerful than god right right, um, right. So, a creator exactly so of course he would not want to be in a relationship where he could be subjugated in a way so that's why i think he turns to pedophilia but like that whole his whole backstory, I think, would be really fascinating, especially his relationship with um, his dad, too, because there's some mention of it. But, yeah, I think that, that he's a fascinating character as well, even though, like, I don't necessarily want to read about his pedophilia, but I, I think that his backstory would be really interesting. Yeah, it's in keeping with the rest of the characters that the parts that when we get to the parts that make them, I think, most socially and societally abhorrent to us it's you're too you're too drawn in or committed to look away you don't want to like reading the descriptions of how he caresses children's breasts I, it's not i don't know again it's so strange to deal with you have this content that's disturbing with the prose that's quite wonderful and well realized and everything and so yeah i don't again i found those sections fascinating but it's in a you know it's taught in a content that is disturbing of a person's mind who is you know in some way perverted so Anyway, yeah. yeah, no, it's he's in keeping with those other sections too, I think. Let's move to the final section then, Amanda. This is the critical assistance part where we reach outside of ourselves, go to some kind of criticism of the work, maybe a book review, maybe something else, and we discuss it. We do like to end with other people's opinions because we've talked enough, but let's talk some more. <laughs> no end to what we will say. Um, 
I'll, I'll start this one this week. This is yeah. from a PBS series, which is a, it was transcribed interview. So this is not an article per se, but a transcribed interview called Band. This is when PBS interviews educators about why they choose to teach certain banned books. And the bluest eyes I've since learned is pretty widely banned, um, including in a district near us in North Carolina. So anyway, oh, I didn't know that. this discussion was with educator Shakima Silvery or Silver Eye, and she's a classroom English teacher. She's got a million accomplishments listed. I'm not even going to read them all. She's done a lot of impressive stuff. She's hosted things and led things, and she's very impressive, but she's a, an educator, English teacher. So she teaches the bluest eye, and well, let's talk about some of her quotes about it. The question here first was, how do you contextualize this book for your students? And this is her response. Kids who come from, uh, back from college tell me they, that my class feels more like a cultural studies class than an English class. The way I teach is that we explore the world and literature is the artifact. In my classroom, the novels are not the be-all to end-all. The novels are what we use to examine the culture that we currently find ourselves in. When I teach these things, I never say open your books and turn to chapter one. I show the students the doll test where the psychologist has the children pick up the doll and say which one is ugly, which one is pretty, and which one is bad. And so we look at the world first and then say, oh, by the way, this is what Toni Morrison has to say about it. Really fascinating quote. I feel very torn about this quote because I don't know. I, I still, I'm a, I'm a very, I, I forget the theoretical camp I'm in, but it's, it's very textual. I'm like a textualist or something, an originalist. I just think the value is in the work because it's the thing the artist made. Now, nothing, no art is ever devoid of context ever. And it's always that right. you have to bring certain lenses to bear. But I just, I don't know, I bristle at this, especially since the class is for the literary arts. Now, granted, that experiment she brought in, fantastic. I, you always have to find ways to connect to your students, make things relevant and pertinent, and even cross-disciplinary stuff. I, I'm feeling it. I, I did all of those things in my classes, too. But to say that, you know, we're not picking up chapter one... Like, Morrison made a beautiful work of art. I would please like to begin there. Now, again, that doesn't mean you don't supplement things. You always supplement. But I did bristle at that quote because I responded to so much of the, just the language and construction of this work that I to, – mm. to think that that wouldn't be the foregrounded thing, that's the part I hear and I think I, that I philosophically don't agree with that. But then again, it seems like she's doing a lot of smart activities too as a you know, former educator. I get the basic premise, but yeah, I don't know. That's why there are cultural studies courses. You know, it's a, Let's give one to the literary arts and I don't know. There are other courses too. Sociology class exists, you know, but I guess unfortunately not in most high schools, we could say, so. Right. I don't know what right. your thoughts about that were. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> of course, context is important. And, and in order for any reader to really appreciate and understand a novel, yes, you should have some context. But I think that the, the focus of it should be and uh, not it should be the novel itself and should be the language used in the, the study of the language itself. Yeah. In conjunction with the context as as like, you know. A separate thing where you could do <clears throat> like a social studies project in your social studies or history class about that and then have a novel that you use to explore also like the what was happening in the literature at that time and stuff I, mm -hmm. yeah yeah I understand her reasoning for doing it like that but I agree like the novel is in and of itself is also just so much to explore and to learn yeah. about as far as like style and stuff. Calling so, it an yeah. artifact of something almost like a happenstance in a happenstance right. kind of way just feels that's the part that felt really absurd to me where it's, yeah. 
I don't know if, if we believe in the sanctity of art at all, then an artistic object has a certain power to it in and of itself. And again, I literally know art should ever be discussed outside of context, literally ever in my mind. But I guess in my mind, it's like also a scale balance thing where I'm just like, man, right. that's too much on the <laughs> like, I feel like the art demands because of its quality and insight and because of it, I don't know. I mean, this work is especially complex too, right? So I, I just imagine getting an essay from a student and if there's, if they're not using a lot of quotes about some of the language and intricacy of it, and they're just kind of blanket summarizing parts of the book, that would just drive me insane because <laughs> the book is, has so much intricacy to unpack that I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, th- things yeah, to consider. I, I, yeah. I thought that was an interesting take. Um, the other question they asked her is why do you teach this book? There were, I'm not going to read this whole quote, it's long, but at the end she talks about, a lot of the quotes are about Shirley Temple and like, why are black dolls not sold or considered beautiful and white ones are kind of considered the pristine ones and everything. And at the end she says, it's not just themes of incest and sexuality that are presented in the novel, that theme of beauty is being tied to whiteness, that's something we've been able to challenge inside the classroom, which I think, yeah, is a really pertinent thing and I guess I when it talks about themes of incest and sexuality, this is, it became clear to me in my brief research that the reason it's banned is basically the Charlie chapter. If the Charlie chapter didn't exist, granted the structure of the book wouldn't exist and everything would change, but that's clearly what people take umbrage with is just how descriptive and disturbing, disgusting that, that part is. Mm. But I just think, I, you know, I admire that she teaches it or that anyone would. I just don't think if you're going to stare humanity down, you, then you have to stare it down. You you can't just walk away and shirk that responsibility. And so I, you can always take umbrage with how she did it and the whether you think it was effective or not for its purposes, missions, goals, themes, whatever. But yeah, no, I'm glad that that... It, I get that she's trying to sideline those things maybe a little just because those are the things that people get really upset about being to- discussed with young people, high school students. But I just, yeah, I mean, those things are present. Um, and again, there's so much more you could talk about. But anyway, I, I can see where that quote comes from just in terms of I don't want to get angry parent phone calls about, like, why are they reading a three-page, you know, descriptive rape scene? That's, I don't know. Anyway, I don't, I, at what age, I guess, part of, part of those high school conversations become when then? You know, it's right. certain, certainly the answer can't be never, I don't think. Or maybe I, that's just, again, personal belief that it shouldn't be never, so when? And anyway, um, I have one more quote that I want to wrap with, but let's throw it to you then. What did you bring for the critical assistance? Um, I brought something from The New Yorker. It's called Tony Morrison's Profound and Unrelenting Vision by Hilton Alls. Um, and this is actually written, I guess, I, I think it was written this year, um, mm-hmm. for, I guess it was like the 50th anniversary of this book. Mm. She did pass recently. So I, I imagine last year, I believe. yeah, maybe it had something to do with that. I, I was going to say it was, I don't, I don't remember when it was within the last couple of years at any rate. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was written in, in 1970 originally. Okay. <clears throat> so... Yeah, uh, and it still feels like it's right written about today, um, mm-hmm. and what's you know what's happening today in a lot of ways. But um, <clears throat> so um, Hilton Alls um, had some really insightful, I think, uh, discussions about what he noticed in in this novel. Um, and so he says, in this short, intellectually expansive, emotionally questioning, and spiritually knowing book, the act of looking and seeing is described 
again and again. And here I thought that was really important, especially if um, you study um, some literary theory about, um, and I think actually uh, film theory about the male gaze, Mm -hmm. right? And how, um, are you familiar with that at all? Yes. Yeah. From film criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, So the, the idea that like, um, which is tied to the concept of like, what is beautiful? What are, what's the expectation for women as far as like their looks and, and how they act, behave and how they modify their looks in order to fit all of that and how we're always being judged. Um, But here I thought it was interesting too, because in the novel, it's not just the men, but it's the women too, who have that gaze and who are being hypercritical and kind of modifying and um, the expectations for behavior, gender roles, and um, feelings of self self worth. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, and I really liked that he pointed out the idea of of looking too. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have um, another one where he's talking about how it's set near the Second World War, so it it is set in the past but like i said it's i feel like it's still something that could happen like today almost in a lot of ways um if we were to take out those references um to the specific time period um um, by dispensing with narrative suspense up front which is something that we discussed last time right yeah morrison the modernist focuses our attention on character on how the stories we tell about and to one another often are the story. And I thought that was really interesting because um, we've already made a connection with Stephen King, the the two novellas that we read as far as like putting that conflict at the very beginning, like kind of just already naming what the main yeah. conflict is. Yeah. Um, but how it pays off in the end. And I thought that was really interesting where it's like, he's saying that the reason for putting that up front is so that we can focus on character and about the story itself, which is which ties really nicely as well to King and and uh, King's statement that it's not he who tells the story, but it's the story itself. Hundred percent. So I that was a yeah. that was an interesting way to connect those two novels. <laughs> yeah, the the quote here at the end of this first one you pulled, um, which yeah. Al says, and the truth is, by the by the time we leave Piccola, pecking at the waist on the margins of the world. We too may feel a measure of relief at no longer having to see what Morrison sees, her profound and unrelenting vision of what life can do to the forsaken. It is kind of true. It does feel, I mean, Claudia takes it directly on it at the conclusion as a condemnation kind of of herself, of the world, of American society, and how they wrapped Piccola up in this tragedy. And so, yeah, I could see that, that... it, it is a novel because it's so difficult to stomach a good amount of it that, yeah, when you get to the ending, it's you knew it's something you should have seen, but maybe didn't want to see or something. Yeah. And the, the last part, the last quote that I pulled from um, this article is uh, part of Morrison's genius had to do with knowing that our cracked selves are a manifestation of a sick society, the ailing body of America, whose racial malaise keeps producing Picolas. So that ties to wanting to not see in a lot of ways that the Picolas of our society and instead placing blame on the Picolas of our society to make ourselves feel better about it um, and how it's still relevant today. Yeah. Yeah. And the book recommendation, I'm going to talk about that or kind of a thread similar to that. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts from from Hilton Hall's uh, writer who I he wrote a really interesting essay collection that I own if you ever want to read some of his stuff. He wrote one of the oh. better essays about the rapper Eminem that I've ever read. Oh, really? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I've never encountered any of his works before, and I yeah. enjoyed reading this article. Those so. few years I had that New Yorker subscription before the stack overwhelmed me. <laughs> I think I was reading... I was always trying to do a few per per issue, but they crank that stuff out on a weekly basis, and it is it's dense. There's just so much to pick through. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I got to know him then, and he. I think his primary beat for the New Yorker has been the theater, specifically New York centric Broadway type of like what are the productions that are interesting, and so a lot of his criticism is about theater, but occasionally he would be tapped on other things, and I was found him a pretty insightful writer. But as we as we know in our track record here shows the New Yorker does, rarely misses, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we are intellectually drawn <laughs> to the criticism they put. Also, yeah, short of looking up academic articles and things, it's pretty much as good as you're going to find for free on the Internet. Yeah, yeah generally sure. speaking, I think so. Any other quotes yeah. from that one to discuss? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Yeah. Some interesting parting thoughts. Well, I think we recorded a podcast befitting of the work, which is all we can ever hope to do. Any final thoughts on the bluest eye, Amanda, before we do some logistics and head out of here? I just, I mean, I read this in high school. My Mm -hmm. AP English teacher, my junior year, she was all about the band books. We read this book. We read The Catcher in the Rye. We, We read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. All of these like controversial books. And I just absolutely loved it. And I don't, I don't remember bluest eye from the class except to to remember that we had a lot of great discussions Mm -hmm. and i just am blown away rereading this like i i absolutely enjoyed it yeah yeah it was quite a remarkable achievement to stumble upon i will say and this will be well, we haven't recorded the book rack yet, but the listener will have been able to hear it by now. So it's all very complicated here, but (laughs) it's all just to say one line I did want to throw in the book rack is I this was maybe the first band book I've ever read where at the end I did kind of shrug and think I mean my position is pretty firmly don't ban anything just justify things and pick thoughtfully but this is one that I kind of I stumbled upon this problem in middle school. Middle school readers, I think, are in the trickiest position because if they're advanced in their reading, there's almost nothing for them to read intellectually and emotionally. But in terms of lexile, there's a ton that they could try and read. It's just that they're not going to be able to grapple with a lot of it. This book hit that for me a bit. I I do think that uh, an advanced... And I mean that in the maybe emotional sense, not only just in the literary reading ability sense, but I think some high school students can grapple with this. But this is one that I read and I thought, I could see why someone would ban this. Again, my position would be definitely not. This is a beautiful work of art that, you know, at whenever you're ready for it, you should approach it. But yeah, the, one of the first banned books I encountered, because I find a lot of the bands to be so frivolous. Like Fahrenheit 451 is banned. That's just so silly to me there's so many out there that i find so silly where i find the umbrage taking with it is really just kind of a joke this is the first one where i was like oh it's not a joke if someone read this and they're like i don't think my child can grapple with this right now i would actually nod and think yeah (laughs) yeah i mean i don't i think they should have to at some point but uh, anyway yeah not that again i would agree with the band but it's it is layered and it is a tragedy of a very uh, poignant type so lots to mm-hmm. think about there anyway um let's wrap this up 
Well, let's talk about our next books. We do have books coming up next week. We'll be discussing and talking about Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee. After that, we've got coming up, so that'll be for two weeks, usual format on that, Book Recommendation Monday, and then the book clubs on Fridays after. And then the two books that follow that one are going to be Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton. And then, San, is it Sansei and Sensibility? Is that the... I think so, yeah. Okay, Sansei. I wasn't sure if it was Sen, but Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tay Yamashita. And then after that, I think we're doing The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. So those are the next four books in a row, I believe. Yeah, definitely, right? Native speaker for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I didn't see the fourth book and I panicked. So <laughs> that was me, that was me <laughs> thinking like, oh my God, do we not pick ahead? Anyway, so yes, Native Speaker by Chang Ray Lee next, Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton after, Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tay Yamashita, and then The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson after that. Okay, final parting thoughts, Amanda, if you have any on the bluest eye. No fun, good. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you coming along this journey with us, as always. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages.